Welcome to Arsenal On Air, your primary source to arm yourself with the information to lead a healthy, productive, prosperous, and informed life in the 21st century. Today we have a very important episode, albeit long, uh, because there's a lot of ground that we have to cover in this episode of Media Mania. Because in order to, to understand our current media environment, we have to provide some groundwork and some substantial prefacing and defining terms. So with that, the things that we seek to cover today today is going to be uh, understanding the information age from a historical context. In doing so, that's going to allow us to really see how information was transmitted in the past, and that'll give us reference as to how information is transmitted today to kind of clear the air a little bit and help people get their bearings. Uh, because information flies at us so fast from so many different directions, and I feel that if we have the historical context of how information was transmitted previously, that'll give us a better understanding of our current predicament. Uh, next, we're going to define media, and we're going to outline how media has uh, been used to influence people historically, and then we'll also see how technological advancements uh, with science and machinery and electricity has led to more forms of media and eventually modern mass media. And lastly, what we're going to do is we're going to arm listeners with the tools to make sense of our modern media environment uh, using a method of media literacy that I, I've been able to develop that's helped me in my journey through understanding modern media. If this episode turns out to be too long for you and you don't have the time to listen to it or you just want to get a brief synopsis, uh, be sure to look at the TLDL or listen to the TLDL, which is the Too Long Didn't Listen, which is a short five minute or so segment at the end of the podcast where I take everything we, we learned in the podcast and encapsulate it into this brief segment that uh, hopes to outline all of the important aspects of the show. So, so with that, please enjoy the show. Alright, so where do we begin? Uh, let's begin with just defining modern man. Modern man has been around since about 10,000 BCE, but that's not to be mistaken with humanity, which has been around for, in some arguments, over 250,000 years, but definitely in excess of 100,000 years, and in the extreme cases with some archaeological sites, millions of years. But again, for the sake of brevity, let's just talk about uh, modern man, which started uh, about 10,000 BCE, and that started with the agricultural revolution. Uh, what we were able to do there was increase our overall energy and productivity just by domesticating animals and getting, getting better at farming and refining our techniques. This age, uh, by a substantial margin, is the largest one because uh, all we were doing during that time is increasing energy, and by increasing energy and growing more food, we basically, we grew more humans. Uh, that's, this is a very, very simple age, but obviously a lot of history happened in that time. Uh, it's thousands of years of, of human history, but just from the meta perspective here, all we, all we did was increase energy and productivity. Uh, that is until we hit the Industrial Age, which is one that we're all familiar with. The Industrial Age is defined by our uh, discovery and harnessing of machinery and outsourcing most of our physical labor to machines. 
And the important thing that happened here it did the same thing as the agricultural age, except this this time it increased both of those factors of energy and productivity exponentially. Uh, with founding of inf inventions like the cotton gin, the power loom, the, uh, the steam engine, all of those things really allowed us to outsource what we would typically do by hand or by labor with animals or, or slavery. Uh, we basically used machines to do all of that and it increased our ability to work on other things and then create more machines. Uh, right, this is a short age, this is only three to 400 years. So in comparison to the agricultural revolution, which is thousands of years, or the agricultural age, rather, the, the information, the, not information age, the industrial age, was only a few hundred years, but what we were able to get out of that few hundred years goes to show the power of exponentials. Now the next one is the information revolution, which leads to the information age. And by most accounts, you'll see that the information age really started to begin in the 20th century when we started to use computers. But uh, I would actually make the argument that the information revolution started with a industrial age invention and that was the Gutenberg Press. Because the Gutenberg Press, albeit a industrial age invention, it's distinctly different than any of the other inventions during that time period because of its long-standing effects uh, it had on humanity. And the fact that we obviously, we still use books. But uh, the important thing that happened here with the Gutenberg Press was it allowed us to create more books uh, faster because we used books in the past and that's that's not a that's not up for debate but what the Gutenberg press did was just allowed us to do it quickly and get them out faster uh, and basically by doing so it increased the population's literacy and competency because prior to prior to the Gutenberg press the ruling class and the church had a chokehold on information so only those that had the resources and capital to educate themselves and their kin could orate, read, and write. Because the vast majority of the population was illiterate, right? They're serfs, peasants, and so as a result, they had to follow orders from the top down. And at the time, the top down was from the church. And so if the church has a monopoly on the information of the day, uh, particularly the ability to communicate and write, then that gives them a substantial advantage of maintaining control over the population. But what happened with the Gutenberg Press is more people got more access to books and uh, as a result more people started learning how to read, learning how to write, learning how to spread more books and again this kind of uh, plays into these ideas of, of exponentials because only within a few hundred years we had hundreds of millions of, of books. But that's a, it's important to notice that that didn't stop the church from trying to still maintain control over these information channels, right? Because once they noticed the power of this invention, what they were able to do, uh, or what they did actually, was create what's called the Librorum Prohibitorum, or the Library of Prohibited Books. And uh, a great example of one of the books that was on this list was, um, you know, some of Galileo's work, because it was directly... Uh, antagonistic to the church and you know made people question their legitimacy and that's not something uh, a dominant power structure can have by any means so suppression and censorship at all costs was the goal 
Uh, they'd also do this by withholding print licenses. So if you if you didn't have a license, you weren't allowed to print. If you did, you faced uh, likely death, you know, or, or jail time. But you know, the church really didn't mess around if if you went went against their mainstream narratives. Uh, but regardless, you know, the information revolution oppressed oppressed onwards mainly because of underground circulation of books and just the fact that it's it's completely impossible to uh, constrict information flows for that long. So before we go any further, I think it's important to define information because that's a word that we're going to be using quite often. And so I like to use Merriam-Webster for most of the definitions just because it's a good shorthand reference. And so there's two definitions that we're going to be working with today. The first one is knowledge obtained from investigation, study, instruction, or experience. The second definition is a signal or character as in a communication system or computer representing data. We'll get to that second definition later, but for now we're primarily going to work with the first one, knowledge obtained from investigation, study, instruction, or experience. So I hype uh, the Gutenberg Press mainly because it lays the foundation for better understanding the information age as a whole. The, the result from this explosion of books resulted in innumerable things, but most notably the rise in literacy and the proliferation of science, which eventually led to the fall of the hegemony that the church had, right? The dominance that it had over uh, the culture, cultural ethos and institutions of the day. But the important thing to notice about what books and the Gutenberg Press were able to do is that it allowed for more scientific developments because we have, uh, communicated effectively. So in this in itself is a positive feedback loop because when we can communicate effectively, we can get more developments in science. And then when we get more developments in science, we can communicate more effectively and so on and so forth, right? The Gutenberg Press was version 1.0, but once we started refining the techniques and processes, print became the primary medium for hundreds of years and still is today. We still use print all the time in our newspapers, in books, in pamphlets, and all sorts of things. Uh, and this is kind of why there's an overlap, in my opinion, between the industrial age and the information age. Because even though that is an industrial age invention, it just the ramifications of having that sort of technology at that time period, given the institutions of the day, is unlike anything else that came from that time period. Uh, but you know, a few hundred years later, once we start, once we found and harnessed electricity, that's where things really started to change with information distribution, which led to modern mass media. Uh, but before we go into that and the subsequent evolutions of uh, media through electricity, it's really important that we define media because this very simple five-letter word has, uh, has a lot behind it. And so to start, we got to understand that media is just a plural form of medium. And all a medium is, is something, it, it's the thing by which or through something is done or communicated. And so that's, that's quite simple. Uh, this this the way you're receiving this message right it's through it's through a medium you're receiving a message through a piece of technology and that it's in itself is a medium so for example a book is a medium for text a telephone is a medium for voice a television is a medium for sight and sound and so on and so forth 
another really critical component of understanding media is by analogy. So one of the things that I've uh, accumulated in my understanding of media is just as technology is an extension of our critical, physical, and mechanical faculties, faculties, our media is an extension of our creative, communicative, and expressive faculties. So in a lot of ways, our media is just uh, reciprocal to our technology of the day. So a great example of this would be the iPhone. It's a groundbreaking technology, but what it also allows us to do is express ourselves in new ways via a new medium. So you can kind of see how once we get new technology, it introduces us to new mediums, which allows us to express ourselves in new ways, and then these things just compound on each other again. So this is beautiful reciprocal, uh, yin and yang reciprocal relationship between these two things. Um, to understand media a little bit further, what we can do is turn to uh, one of the people that's known as the father of modern media studies, and that's Marshall McLuhan. Uh, and basically what he says is our media are extensions of ourselves. So what does that mean? Essentially, uh, our media is an extension of our expressive and creative and communicative faculties. So for example, my voice is an extension of myself. So by hearing it in this form, it's a disembodiment of my being in a single medium, that medium being audio, which you're receiving auditorily. And so by you know, hopefully by understanding it in that sense, we can begin to understand that uh, media in itself is just an extension of, of human expression. You may have also heard that uh, McLuhan coined this phrase, it's the medium is the message. And that may seem like a simple phrase, but I can assure you after reading some of, some of the book that's, that, uh, that is titled that, The Medium is the Message, it's a very complex idea that he's written hundreds, and hundreds of pages and thousands of words about. Uh, but to, what, I've able to, what I've been able to do is to really understand this line, all you have to do is flip it into a question. So what's the message of the medium? And again, to understand this a little bit further, uh, in chapter one of his seminal book, The Medium is a Message, he kind of expands on this and he says, quote, the content of any medium is always another medium. The content of writing is speech, just as the written word is the content of print, and print is the content of telegraph, end quote. Now clearly we don't use the telegraph anymore, but I hope uh, that kind of hammers home the, the point. Basically, uh, Another way to understand this in a basic form is your computer monitor. It's a medium by definition, just because it's something through which a message is communicated. But it's not limited to any one message, because through your computer you can receive audio, you can receive text, you can watch video, and all other forms of mediums with their own messages. If this is kind of confusing, we can put it simply. The medium communicates the message, which is just different ways of humu human communication and expression, be it verbally, orally, or visually. So that's all the minutia. That's the, that's the underground, the behind the scenes, the backstage of media. But the meta is this. To really understand this at a, at a large scale, we use media to convey ourselves through art, language, imagery, and sensory experience. That is in its essential form, media. But our shared media, namely news and trending narratives, these are fundamentally just stories.
but some are given more attention than others depending on who has the most control over stories to give them the most influence over the most amount of people. So hopefully by this time, mass media is kind of self-explanatory. It's just a, a mass medium is a medium in which most people engage in its use. And so a great example of this would be the book. And you can also see using the church as another uh, example of the time, if it had, a, if it had control over the, the main mass media of the time, mainly through art, uh, song, books, you can see how it can maintain uh, ideological and cultural conformity across millions of people. But clearly that was, uh, was short-lived after the introduction of the Gutenberg Press because it just started to unravel. And, you know, once we came into the Industrial Revolution, things just changed forever because of our ability to express ourselves in new ways given the technology of the day. And then came electricity. Oh my God! Electric. This is this is probably this is the biggest evolution in media, uh, and it's something that still influences us to this day. Considering all of our modern media runs off of electricity. So why is electricity important in this context? Because elect. It's because electricity allowed for instantaneous communication across vast distances. Uh, thereby making time and space irrelevant in transmitting information. Uh, because with the introduction of electricity, information now traveled at the speed of light. And that really has profound ramifications uh, for society. Because remember, as McLuhan noted, it led to new forms of media, which is just our uh, ways of expressing ourselves. And, you know, a great, a great example of that is telegraph, telephone, radio, and cinema. All of those are only really possible because of electricity, but they're also just new forms of expression for human beings. Again, uh, piggyback, pi uh, piggybacking off of technology at the time. Uh, but it's important to recognize too that this this is uh, a new and powerful technology, but we, we kind of run into a similar predicament as we did with the church, which is namely centralization. And except with this time, instead of it being, um, you know, the, the clergy, it's, it's now corporations and the government. Because at this time, uh, for, for reference, we're in the early 20th century, the late 19th century. That's when we really started to use our, media, our uh, electricity as a means of communicating information uh, via the media. And this is really this idea of centralization as it relates to the church and, and text at the time and uh, electronic media and corporations and government is best illuminated by the establishment in 1927 of the Federal Radio Commission, right? And then the government uh, only awarding broadcasting licenses at their own discretion to whom they felt would provide the most public good. And you know, obviously, however they define that is in their is in their own their own way. But that is mimics that of the church, right? When they were providing print licenses to whom they deemed fit. So, following that to illustrate uh, the power, really, of modern e electronic media at the time, we can turn to. Uh, what the founder, the father, the founder and father of public relations, and uh, one of the primary formulators of public opinion, Edward Bernays. Uh, you might know him. He's also the nephew of the renowned Sigmund Freud. 
but uh, Edward Bernays is, is a really profound figure in media because he wrote a book in the early 20th century titled Propaganda. And there's a really important excerpt from this book. There's a there's there's numerous really that I would love to just read the book to you guys, but that's you know you can just buy the audiobook for that. That's not my job. My job is to synthesize the information that I come across and provide it to you in an absorbable manner. So what I've been able to do is on page forty of his book is take out a take out a quote that illustrates the influence that media has, electronic media has. And so he says, quote. As civilization becomes more complex and the need for invisible government has been increasingly demonstrated, the technical means have been invented and developed by which opinion may be, may be regimented. With the printing press and newspaper, the railroad, telephone, telegraph, radio and airplanes, ideas can be spread rapidly and even instantaneously all over the whole of America. End quote. So you can see how... Uh, this really influential figure in public relations history knows the power of the media at the time. And uh, he goes on to work with corporations and the government. And and crazy enough, a great example of some of the work that he was able to do, if you're not familiar with it, is Torches of Freedom, uh, where he worked with tobacco companies in the early 20th century to help get uh, women more involved with tobacco products and smoking because there was a societal stigma at the time that women didn't smoke and this was hurting tobacco companies' profits. So what he was able to do was create an information campaign oriented around, uh, I, think it was an, I think it was Easter Parade in the 1920s, and he, he got the media to take very specific pictures of women smoking cigarettes and then throw this throw this spin around it, calling it torches of freedom. So having women smoking cigarettes and then uh, identifying that with freedom uh, boosted tobacco company sales exponentially because now women of the time associated smoking cigarettes with independence and freedom. And that's just a brief encapsulation of uh, some of the work that he's done. And that was just with you know the public public work that he did with corporations. Um, there's a lot of other things that he worked with when it comes to wartime uh, propaganda and and public opinion uh, influence in in his later years. Uh, a great example to pull another quote from the book. Uh, he says, "Quote: We are governed." Our minds molded, our tastes formed, our ideas suggested, largely by men we have never heard of. Comma. I mean, end quote. Sorry, I'm, I'm so used to using dictation from Siri to write some of this stuff out, so that's why I say comma. But, but nonetheless, uh, uh, Bernays is a profound figure in in media history because uh, he he's just the father of modern corporate propaganda, essentially, uh, and public relations. Uh, and, and he really defines propaganda to define more terms so we don't get confused here. Uh, Bernays defines propaganda as a consistent, enduring effort to create or shape events to influence the relations of the public to an enterprise, idea, or group. And that's a really, uh, that's a really great definition. But to put this even more simply, uh, propaganda is a deliberate information campaign with the intention to persuade. Because the word propaganda was really, really bastardized once, uh, once Germany started to influence its public with its propaganda methods, and that created this nefarious, um, 
nefarious negative connotation with the word, but the word in itself is relatively harmless. Harmless. All you have to know is that it's a deliberate information campaign with the intention to persuade. So that can be on uh, any number of things. You know, there's there's good propaganda as well, right? Like we we, we see propaganda all the time about uh, taking care of the environment. You know, and that that's the using it properly. But we also have to recognize that deliberate information campaigns can be used nefariously. Uh, with the intention to influence, which we will get onto uh, shortly. So, building off of uh, of that foundation of, of setting the stage for modern media and how it can be influenced in the early, how it can be used to influence in the early twentieth century, uh, we can use a phrase that we we're all really familiar with, right? With great power comes great responsibility. Uh, but I think what we can do is is change this to better suit our discussion uh, to with great power comes consolidation and centralization, thereby allocating responsibility to a select few. And so hopefully Brené's work outlined the immense power of, of the media and that newfound definition helps us see how once new and influential technology is introduced, its tendency is to be centralized and consolidated, um, putting responsibility in, in a few hands more than the many. Uh, and so we can see how that is really mimicked with the modern nation state corporations and governments as to the church, right? With these new information technologies being centralized and controlled with the intention to maintain the uh, cultural norms of the day that the institutions of the day set forth. And so uh, with that, we can also see just how influential this technology would be in time of war, right? Nowhere is this more apparent in World War II and how important the communications technology was during that time. And we've all heard the stories about how uh, telegraph and telegram uh, transmissions were intercepted and that revealed the location and the plans of uh, of adversaries and if that's something you're interested in be sure to check out all the world war ii history on it because that's not what we're going to go into today what we're trying to understand is what was the power and influence of information technology in times of peace and so after world war ii with the rise of television we we had a renaissance in entertainment and advertising but less often talked about is the evolution of social control and persuasion through these new mass mediums. Uh, and the best thing, I, the best description uh, I've found of this is is encapsulated by the idea of the blue church. And I found a really great article by by a man named Jordan Hall on Medium.com. I know it's, it's ironic, but basically he describes the blue church as the following. The Blue Church is a kind of narrative ideology control structure that is the natural result of mass media. It is an evolved rather than designed function that has come over the past half century to be deeply connected to the democratic political establishment and lightly connected with the deep state to form an effective political and dominant cultural force in the United States. We can trace its roots at least as far back as the beginning of the 20th century, where it emerged in response to the new capabilities of mass media for social control. By mid-century, 
it began to play an increasingly meaningful role in forming and shaping American culture-producing institutions. It became pervasive through the last half of the 20th and seems to have peaked in the influence somewhere in the first decade of the 21st century. It is now beginning to unravel. And we'll come back to why it's unraveling a little bit later. But uh, it's just important to recognize here that this idea of the blue church as, a, as an ideology control structure um, is that it's a both an evolution of the new media and it's partially by design. Because remember, with great power comes consolidation and centralization, thereby allocating responsibility to a select few. So whereas it's partially by design, it's mostly an inevitability of the new and powerful influential technology. Because once these things come out, uh, you know, people have to get their hands on them. Uh, and the people that can't get their hands on them are the people that have the resources to do so. And so for us in the 20th century, uh, that again, that's corporations and the government. So to best understand the influence of this structure on society, we can turn to Noam Chomsky's work, who is a preeminent uh, media scholar and an outspoken critic of the U.S. government. Uh, Chomsky spent a great portion of his career condemning both U.S. foreign action and the U.S. media's coverage and most often misrepresentation of that action. He outlines this in his pioneering work, Manufacturing Consent, where he provides case study after case study of the U.S. media being likely being influenced by the U.S. government to portray them in a light to the public that is beneficial to public, uh, public opinion for them to continue with their efforts abroad that is usually antagonistic to that of the public. And so to, to outline the propaganda model that he provides in Manufacturing Consent, I've taken this little excerpt from chapter one. So bear with me here because this one this one's a little bit longer, but uh, it's it's wildly important in defining mass media and how it's how it influences culture, it, it, at least in the West. So he says, and I quote, the mass media serve as a system for communicating messages and symbols to the general populace. It is their function to amuse, entertain, and inform, and to inculcate individuals with the values, beliefs, and codes of behavior they will integrate them into the institutional structures of the larger society. In a world of concentrated wealth and major conflicts of class interest, to fulfill this role requires systematic propaganda. He goes on to say that, in countries where the levers of power are in the hands of a state bureaucracy, the monopolistic control over the media, often supplemented by official censorship, makes it clear that the media serve the ends of a dominant elite. It is much more difficult to see a propaganda system at work with the media where the media are private and formal censorship is absent. And lastly, he says, this is especially true where the media actively compete periodically attack and expose corporate and government malfeasance and aggressively portray themselves as spokesmen for free speech. What is not evident and remains undiscussed in the media is the limited nature of such critiques, as well as the huge inequality of command of resources and its effect both on access to a private media system and its behavior and performance. And this is only further complicated by the, the widely known CIA-run operation Mockingbird, where the CIA was actually held on trial in the 80s for paying and recruiting journalists in the mainstream media to influence major news narratives of the day, uh, primarily around Vietnam. 
And then just as a, as a fun fact, I throw this in here, this Operation Mockingbird might make you think twice when listening to Anderson Cooper, who, for those of you who don't know, while studying at Yale, spent two summers interning with the CIA. So that's something to take into consideration, you know, some food for thought. But to really hammer this home, the idea of uh, the mainstream media being used to further an agenda by the government that is contrary to what the public really wants, we can turn to Jim Morrison, the, the, vo- the lead vocalist of The Doors, where he says in one of his most widely known quotes, whoever controls the media controls the mind. Now you might be thinking, okay, well, who's an artist to say, to say uh, something about that? Well, crazy enough, for those of you who don't know, Jim's father was George Morrison, who at the time was the commander of the U.S. Naval Fleet of the Gulf of Tonkin. And the Gulf of Tonkin incident was the one that was taken out of context by the U.S. and the U.S. media to escalate its involvement in the Vietnam War, contrary to what everybody wanted. And so that's the perfect example of someone who knows how the media works fundamentally, considering his father was involved in the incident that was taken out of context to push the U.S. into war with Vietnam. Uh, And this is really only possible, this widespread control of media, due to consolidation. And that's one of the primary components of the propaganda model that Chomsky proposes. And basically what uh, consolidation is, is the tendency for businesses to consolidate, to create an economy of scale. And basically what this does is allows them to lower fixed costs as they expand. It's a natural course of business and it allows them to save the bottom line. Because as the company grows and they can uh, bring in more resources to lower the overall cost, they can become more profitable. Uh, This is, nowhere is this more apparent than... Uh, the consolidation of Western media. Uh, specifically, in, in the 1980s, there were 50 corporations that produced over 90% of Western American media. Today, there are five, uh, down one from 2019, where there was six, considering that Viacom and CBS have just merged. So now we have uh, five corporations in the year 2021 that produce over 90% of Western American media. And that includes News Corp, Comcast, Time Warner, Disney, and Viacom CBS. Their total revenues account for over a quarter of a trillion dollars. And so this is where things will tend to get kind of murky for some people because they'll start to confuse consolidation with conspiracy when it's in fact what actually results is conformity. It's ideological conformity. And conformity is very coercive, but so is the paycheck. Uh, once you're in a newsroom or an environment that uh, it has this form of conformity, it's very difficult to voice your opinion, and you're and you're really not allowed to disseminate news in the proper the proper free free thought free speech ways that we're used to in in the West. I'd really love to to outline this phenomenon with the recent resignation of Barry Weiss who was the uh, head editor of the opinion column for the New York Times. Uh, She quit recently and uh, not on good terms because she, in her resignation letter, she she outlines the proclivity of the New York Times to trend towards orthodoxy and bias. And she outlines this explicitly in her resignation letter. 
uh, and I took a couple excerpts from this, so, so, so to read those to you guys so we can really have an understanding of some of the major institutions in our society uh, that we would all like to think as being free, open, transparent, and unbiased as being the complete opposite. Uh, she goes on to say, and I quote, But the lessons that ought to have followed the election, lessons about the importance of understanding other Americans, the necessity of resisting tribalism, and the uh, centrality of the free exchange of ideas to a democratic society, have not been learned. Instead, the new consensus has emerged at the press, but perhaps especially at this paper, that truth isn't a process of collective discovery, but an orthodoxy already known to an enlightened few whose job is to inform everybody else. And she continues this damning letter uh, by saying, I do not understand how you have allowed this kind of behavior to go on inside your company in full view of the paper's entire staff and the public. And I certainly can't square how you and other Times leaders have stood by while simultaneously praising me in private for my courage. Showing up for work as a centrist at an American newspaper should not require bravery. So there you have it, <laughs> essentially. Uh, corporate influence, state control, ideological conformity. Th these are cornerstones of our modern mass media. They're unfortunately its roots and its foundations, just less often talked about given their um, insidious nature. So now that we know how mass media can be used to confuse and convolute and outright control the thoughts and emotions of millions of people, what do we do about it? Well, fear not, because this is why we have the internet. And I'll spare you the history of the internet, but essentially it was a DARPA project to connect universities. Uh, and with the introduction of commercialization, it has become the omniscient and omnipresent force it is today. And this, uh, without a doubt, is what fully signified our transition into the age of information, just because of our ability to uh, have access to and share information now. And this is also where that second definition of information comes in handy, uh, the one about encoding characters into data. So this is where those two cross over, uh, because essentially our ability to encode our knowledge obtained from investigation, study, instruction, or experience uh, has accelerated exponentially because of our ability to encode it with signals or characters as in a communication system or computers representing data. And then this is also another positive feedback loop, right? Because once we have more knowledge and we can share it faster and store more of it, we'll have more knowledge. And then they just build off of each other and yet another exponential feedback loop. And obviously it's, uh, it, it's widely known that the internet has, has changed fundamentally everything in our society and the media is not exempt considering the internet is just another medium in which to express ourselves so it's led to new forms of, of, of expression and communication some people once thought impossible uh, arguably the most important thing that the internet has done is decentralize traditional mainstream narratives so this is where we come back to that idea that Jordan Hall talked about that the idea that the uh, the blue church is unraveling and to encapsulate the Blue Church, very simply, it was the, the this, this dissemination of information from the few to the many. But basically, with the introduction of the internet, it's now the many to the many. So we now have to come to truth collectively, right? It takes you to spell truth. 
And so by having access to this new medium in which expressing yourself has never been easier to the most amount of people ever, uh, you can express your viewpoint based on the information that you've been exposed to. And as a result, the marketplace of ideas has gotten exponentially larger, but now our, our ability to decide what's true has gotten exponentially diff more difficult as well. But luckily, with uh, the, the introduction of these new mediums, more people can, can come to find truth and find facts. But this has also uh, resulted in an information overload. You know, look no further than all the emails you get, the 24-7 news cycle, texts, phone calls, pokes, likes, comments, Snapchats, posts. It's just we are inundated every single day with more information than we know what to do with. And this transition into this age of information is incredibly difficult. But at the end of the day, the metamorphosis is worth it because we are on the verge of an information renaissance considering the amount of knowledge we now have access to but it's now our jobs to make sense of it and with the collapse of some of these central uh, narratives and mainstream media uh, we're basically seeing a form of media anarchism in the west and to some this might be really frightening and to others empowering and this is also what leads us to the title of the podcast media mania. Uh, and basically what I like to do to illustrate where we are uh, in the environment of information is use this analogy that uh, I've used for fitness in the past, which is if you don't create the environment for your body, your environment will create your body for you. So for information, if you don't create your information environment, someone or something uh, will for you. That might come in the form of, uh, of your morning news feeds, which is provided to you from algorithms, or that might come from just tuning into MSNBC every night at 5 p.m. You're, you're having people cultivate information about reality and providing it to you en masse, right? So, because it's not, there's a particular demographic that, that these people are, are going for. And so as a result, once they have what they feel will be most appealing to everybody so they can get the most viewers and cultivate the most profit, that's what they're going to do. So the information that's provided might not necessarily be truthful or uh, relevant to you. It's just what gets them uh, ideally the most, the most profit. But... Uh, considering we are now in the age of information, it, it's a lot of responsibility, but luckily for you, given the nature of the media environment right now, we are we at Arsenal Media are, are redefining how media is portrayed. You know, our job is to provide you with the information to lead a healthy, productive, and informed life in the 21st century. And some of you might have already been doing this, you know, just by the very nature of cultivating the right feeds in your Instagram or, or YouTube, you know, you're coming across inf informative, enlightening, spiritual, healing uh, people, celebrities, internet stars that, you know, are really seeking to get all the best possible information about how to lead a healthy life in the 21st century provided to you. 
but at Arsenal Media, it's explicitly our goal to arm you with the information to lead a healthy, productive, prosperous, and informed life in the 21st century. And with that, that leads us to our last portion of this podcast, which is to make you media literate, uh, to make sense of the information age by providing you a tool uh, in, to do so. So what is media literacy? Well, I, I came across this organization called medialit.org, and according to them, uh, media literacy is a framework to access, analyze, evaluate, and create messages in a variety of forms, from print to video to the internet. Media literacy builds an understanding of the role of media in society, as well as essential skills of inquiry and self-expression necessary for citizens of a democracy. So it's important to recognize that media literacy isn't, uh, isn't the idea that we have to memorize facts or statistics about the media, but rather it's the idea that we uh, have to learn to raise the right questions about what we're watching, reading, or listening to. So I've taken an adapted version of their guide of media literacy and created a tool, uh, an acronym rather, and it's called ADMI, A-A-D-M-I, Author, Audience, Design, Message, and Intention. And we'll go through these uh, each in detail because it's, it's basically a method that will allow you to have a five-pronged method of taking a piece of information analyzing it critically, raising the right questions, and determining whether or not it's right for you. So with that, author, right? Who made it? Was it an individual or a group? Was it an organization, governmental or otherwise? Uh, where else has the author's work been published? Where do their loyalties lie? Where do their biases lie? Where do uh, their ideo ideological propensities lie? By determining the author, you can really determine the rest of the uh, of the different factors in analyzing the piece of media, such as the next one, audience. So by determining audience, uh, you get to know who is the message intended for. Uh, you got to be specific, right? Especially if you're watching um, television or YouTube and you come across a piece of content, what characteristics do you have that the message is trying to get to? So instead of asking how that message might be stereotypical, ask, how have I been stereotyped? Uh, because it's not a matter of what you're being sold, right? Whether it's physically or ideologically, it's a matter of what about you is being sold? Because all of these major companies, Google, uh, Facebook, they have uh, much more data than any of us would ever like to admit on us. And they sell that data to advertisers to sell us products better. So when you encounter an advertisement, um, it's not really a matter of what's, what am I being sold? It's like, well, what about this advertisement? Um, no, what does it know about me? What, what has been sold about me for them to be providing me with this advertisement? Um, and that also goes to any other form of media, including entertainment. The next one's really simple, uh, design. How is this information portrayed? Is it in print? Is it in video, image, audio, all of the above? Uh, do these different form of media, do they conflict? Do they compose? Do they, are they coherent? Uh, that one's really straightforward. The next one is message. So is there something being sold to you either physically or ideologically? 
Are there stereotypes present? Are there conflicts of interest? Uh, if so, how does it contribute to the overall piece? What is the overall piece trying to portray to you? Are there ideas or perspectives left, left out? What's the thesis of the piece? Is it complete? And then the last one, and arguably the most important one, is intention. So who is served by profits or benefits from this message? Is it the public? Is it private interests? Is it individuals or institutions? Are there other economic influences in the message that might lead it to be uh, uh, influential in a way that's not beneficial to you? So hopefully what I've been able to do is outline this method of analyzing a piece of information. And I'll, and I'll help you through it because it may seem like a lot of work. So what, now you have to look at every piece of information and sit there for a couple of minutes and be like, well, who's the author? Who's the audience? How's it designed? What's the message? What's the intention? Um, technically, yes, but in short, no, because in practice, it's much easier. So a, a great way to practice this is if, is if you were to just... Uh, sit and watch the TV commercials for just a few minutes and you'll, and you'll get the hang of it, right? So when uh, an advertisement's portrayed to you by Coca-Cola, well, we can decide, we can determine who the author is uh, rather quickly. It's Coca-Cola. Uh, the audience, that's basically everybody because everybody likes sugar. <laughs> so they're gonna be trying to uh, get their message out to as many people as possible and definitely associate it with emotional triggers that'll make you more inclined to buy the product. The design, really important for a lot of Coca-Cola ads because they are masters at uh, advertisement design and message design. So it's typically gonna come in the form of video uh, because when you, when you have a, a video, you're also you're seeing things visually, you're hearing things auditorily, and you're feeling things emotionally. And having the more mediums you can engage in portraying a piece of information, the, the, more, the more convincing, the more enthralling, the more engaging it is. Uh, the next one, if we're still using this Coca-Cola ad, would be message, right? Well, they're definitely trying to sell you a product and then they're definitely trying to sell you an idea, right? Because the idea they're selling you is a feeling that you associate with their product. Their product is is very simple. It's just, it's a sugary syrup that tastes great and goes good with burgers. But uh, the message is much deeper than that because it's not just that they're trying to sell you the sugary drink. They're trying to sell you a lifestyle that's associated with the product. And then that's kind of uh, leads us into the last one, which is intention. So who benefits from the message or profits from the message? Well, clearly Coca-Cola. Their intention is to persuade you to think about their product in a certain way. And at the end of the day, they, they benefit from this economically because more people are gonna consume their products. And then just to use one more example, we'll, we use this very podcast as an example to um, use this acronym, this method of uh, pentangulating information. So who's the author? The, the author is me, right? A concerned citizen and a, and a studious journalist. The audience is anybody that'll listen, really. <laughs> the design for now is only audio. The message well, is to provide an understanding of modern media, uh, how it came to be, how to interpret it, and how to analyze it. And my intention, as we've stated many times before, is to arm you with the information to lead a healthy, productive, prosperous, and informed life in the 21st century. 
And then lastly, but, but not least, uh, there's an addendum to this, and that's news media. Because when you analyze news media with this method, uh, there's a few more things you have to take into consideration. Because there's different types of information, and it's important to note that information can be used as a weapon, as it all too often is, typically by foreign adversaries with the intention to uh, confuse and manipulate a population. Uh, but there's also forms of more benign um, information, and that's called misinformation. And so misinformation is info that is unintentionally misleading, uh, usually due to a lack of evidence, inherent bias, or out-of-context bites. So you'll see this a lot uh, just if you were to go on Facebook, right? They have misinformation experts who are, you know, usually biased in their own ways, but... Nonetheless, that doesn't mean information, misinformation doesn't, doesn't exist where it most certainly does. So that and disinformation. And the main difference between these two is disinformation is info that is deliberately misleading, but it's masquerading as info that's accurate or truthful because it's usually provided by foreign actors uh, in an attempt to confuse or antagonize the population. This is best... Uh, best characterized by uh, Russia, Russia's Internet Research Agency and how they've gotten two groups who are uh, diametrically opposed. Uh, I can't remember a specific example, but it might have been a, uh, like an, NR, an, an NRA program and a BLM program, and they got them to have conventions across the street. And anybody can take a moment to consider how that might go. So that is disinformation. So... When you're taking this acronym of ADME, of author, audience, design, message, and attention, and you're analyzing news media, uh, be sure to double down on author, audience, and attention. Because we now can use the power of the internet to, to really flesh out who is providing you with the information, where they're from, who pays them, and other things uh, they've written and the influence that they have on that. They may not even exist, right? Oftentimes, bots will be providing information that is completely uh, useless or mischaracterized. So hopefully I've been able to provide you with a tool now that can help you uh, better analyze media in our current information environment because there's so much information out there and especially with the collapse of some of the mainstream medias and narratives and as we're starting to see how a lot of the things they've been portraying might not be in our best interest having this tool is critical because it'll it'll allow you to come to truth on your own terms so to recap here what we've been able to do is outline uh, the information age from a historical context and by doing so we've defined how information has uh, flowed in the past, how it flows today. We define media as a means of human expression and particularly storytelling. We've also provided examples of mass media and how it's been used to influence people. And lastly, and most importantly, we've armed you, the listener, uh, with a tool to get your bearings in our modern information environment with the acronym of ADME. So, I hope this podcast has been illuminating in a lot of senses 
as to how media has been used to influence people in the past, how it's been controlled by central authority just by the very nature of media always having been, in any particular time period, a very powerful form of expression uh, for the individual. So what can you expect from the podcast in the future? Uh, The next episode is going to be an interview with a former MIT professor on blockchain ethics and the founder of the Root Academy, which is an online course uh, looking to find ambitious frontier people looking to change the world for the better. And after that, we're just going to have more foundational podcasts uh, to set the stage for the the podcast going forward on body, breath, and brain. So thank you for listening today. If you have any questions, please feel free to uh, leave a comment or if you enjoyed it, make sure to like it. And if you found it informative and empowering, make sure to send it to as many people as possible because that's the only way we'll be able to come to truth collectively, especially as people start to arm themselves with tools to better understand our information environment. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you on the next one. Hey, so welcome to the TLDL, Too Long, Didn't Listen. Maybe you didn't want to listen to that podcast or you just didn't have the time. So that's why you came here to get all the uh, bite-sized takeaways from the important parts of the podcast. So with that, uh, let's talk about today's important podcast notes. Uh, To start, we set the foundation with understanding what time we find ourselves in and that's the information age and the information age is distinctly different from the previous two ages uh, humanity found itself in namely the industrial and agricultural where in those two ages what primarily happened uh, from the meta overview is that we increased our overall energy and productivity basically we were able to domesticate animals in the name of the agricultural age and as a result, we were able to increase our overall energy and uh, have more people, essentially. And that's what led to the next uh, revolution in human productivity, which was the Industrial Revolution, which led to the Industrial Age, where instead of using more humans and more animals to do our work, we made machines do it for us. And the beautiful thing about using machines instead of people or animals is, is that they work in exponentials. So once we were able to do that, our productivity increased uh, uh, many, many, many fold. And that's what led to the proliferation of many things, including many modern day developments in science. Uh, But what happened uh, somewhere in the midst of the information revolution in about the 16th century was the Gutenberg Press. And this, in some sense, uh, some could argue was the beginning of the information revolution, which led to uh, our current age, which is the information age, which really saw its uh, it, its full transition in the mid 20th century with the introduction of both electricity and computers. But the reason we hammer home the point with the, the Gutenberg press is because prior to the Gutenberg press, sure, we had movable type and uh, a few different methods of producing books, but the Gutenberg Press streamlined that process, and as a result, in just a few decades, 
Um, and within the century, we were producing hundreds of millions of books. And basically what that did is uh, it lessened the church's traditional chokehold on information that was detrimental to their reign. And uh, essentially what that did was pave the way for modern science as uh, a method of understanding the world instead of relying on some of these medieval institutions to provide to us with their uh, with their clergy how we ought to view the world and that paved the way for again science but with the introduction of electricity primarily is when uh, modern media really started to see it's it's come to prominence uh, but that was all preluded by the Gutenberg Press, which is why we put the emphasis on that particular invention, given its long-term ramifications on humanity. Uh, next, we define media, because that's the primary component of today's episode. Uh, and we first start with defining it as... Um, you know, it's the plural form of the word medium. And all a medium is, is the thing by which or through something is done or communicated. So for example, uh, a book is a medium for text and a telephone is a medium for voice just as the television is a medium for sight and sound. And then uh, the biggest takeaway from understanding media is our media is just as technology is an extension of our critical physical and mechanical faculties, our media is an extension of our creative, communicative, and expressive faculties. And the beautiful thing between these two is that they are reciprocal to one another. So as we uh, increase or come up with new innovations in technology, so too do we find new ways to express ourselves through that technology. And it's this beautiful yin and yang process that develops over the course of human history. Uh, we then go on to define mass media, which is uh, essentially stories. In, in its fundamental form, our mass media is just a method to communicate to millions of people our uh, subjective experiences. And this, this podcast is a great example of that because here I am using a particular medium, in this case audio, and I'm uh, expressing that to uh, as many people as possible who are uh, tuned in to listen to it. But that started primarily with the introduction, uh, the founding and harnessing of electricity, where we started to use radio, cinema, telegrams, telephones as the first mass mediums. And then what we start to see uh, is that with the introduction of these new mass mediums is that th what typically happens is with great power comes consolidation and centralization, thereby allocating responsibility to a select few. And this mimics as what happened with the church, with the introduction of the Gutenberg Press, with this new powerful medium being uh, more accessible and ubiquitous to the population, they had to control the, the means of information. So they would do that in the form of uh, withholding print licenses or uh, or putting certain books on their Librorum Prohibitorum, which is just the library of banned books, um, you know, chiefly among them Galileo's work, right, which was completely antagonistic to the church's values and worldviews. So we start to see something very similar happen with the introduction of electronic media, with radio, with the invention 
um, I'm, not, I'm sorry, not the invention, the founding of the Federal Radio Commission and how they, uh, you know, licensed the airwaves to whomever they felt were worthy of it. You know, and it's not malicious, by the way. It's important to recognize that. They, uh, they did this to clear up a lot of the clutter that was going on because radio started out as, as a decentralized, open, amateur uh, form of communication, but once it got so convoluted, the government had to come in and take control of that particular medium. And we'll see this time and again, uh, you know, particularly with telephone, television, and, and radio, of course. And then we kind of go on to describe how uh, how important that was in times of war, of course. You know, uh, having this instantaneous communications technology fundamentally changed warfare forever. But what we were really concerned about in the podcast was how that was used to influence people after uh, after the war in times of peace. Because what happened, especially with the introduction of the television, is we saw a renaissance in entertainment and advertising. But what's uh, less often talked about and what was discovered in the years preceding the war and during the war is the profound uh, presence and opportunity the government had in using the mass media as a method of social control and persuasion. And then this is best encapsulated with the idea of the blue church, which is essentially just uh, an ideology narrative control structure that tends to uh, work with the deep state and the democratic political establishment in portraying particular narratives to the general population. And this is really best encapsulated by the uh, lead vocalist of The Doors, where he said, whoever controls the media controls the mind. And the reason he has uh, the most influence in this particular quote is because his father, uh, unbeknownst to a lot of people, was George Morrison, who was actually the commander of the Navy during the Gulf of Tonkin incident. And for those of you who don't know, uh, the Gulf of Tonkin incident was what the U.S. government used primarily as its excuse to enter the Vietnam War, contrary to public opinion. And so uh, we then go on to use Noam Chomsky and his work, and he outlines a propaganda model based on uh, the consolidation of mass media, uh, particularly from the 80s to our current day. There were 50 corporations that produced over 90% of the media in the 1980s. Uh, as compared to now, where there's only five corporations, and that's Disney, Viacom, CBS, Time Warner, News Corp, and Comcast. And uh, these five corporations account for over a quarter of a trillion dollars in revenue. And uh, But what we really wanted to make sure uh, to people is that it's not necessarily conspiracy that results from this, but it's conformity. Because when you have only five corporations controlling the marketplace of ideas, it leads to uh, strict patterns of thought that don't necessarily allow for uh, new new methods, new methods and um, and ways of coming to truth in a democratic society. And then what we discuss is the internet, and basically the internet uh, destabilized everything because of its uh, in inherent in in inherent uh, ubiquity. To act, uh, of access to everybody. So it's a new medium in which anybody can express their views to anybody. And this is something that's uh, incredibly new to humanity because at no point in human history have we had more access to information or ability to express information to many people. And this, uh, this, this fundamentally changed the structure of how mainstream narratives were portrayed because it was no longer the blue, the blue church method of, of social control, which was the few to the many, it's now the many to the many. 
And, uh, but, you know, as, a, as an externality of the transition into the information age and uh, the, the full bore of the internet coming in on us is it's come, you know, we're in a information overload now. And that's, that's, you can see that in all the emails you get, the 24-7 news cycle, news, texts, calls, pokes, likes, comments, Snapchats, posts, you know, the list goes on. We are inundated every day with more information than humanity has ever have, uh, ha has in the entire history of our species. And so as a result, what we've done at Arsenal Media is created a media literacy guide. And what media literacy is, to put it simply, it's a framework to access, analyze, evaluate, and create messages in a variety of forums from print to video to the internet. And what media literacy intends to do is build an understanding of the role of media in society, as well as the central skills of inquiry and self-expression necessary for citizens of a democracy. And that's a direct quote from an organization called medialit.org. And they have a model that, uh, that I've been able to adapt to our present climate and provide to you, the listener. And that's an acronym, and it's ADME, Author, Audience, Design, Message, and Intention. So author, who made it? Was it an individual, a group, or an organization? Audience, who is this message intended for? What characteristics do you have that the message is trying to get to? Instead of asking how the message stereotypes, ask how have I been stereotyped? Because it's important to remember here, especially in the age of information with the likes of information conglomerates like Google and Facebook, it's not a matter of what you are being sold, it's a matter about what about you is being sold. And then there's design. So, you know, what is the information you're reading? Is it video? Is it print? Is it image? Is it audio? Or is it all of the above? Do these different media conflict, cohere, or compose? The next portion of it is a uh, message. So what is the message? Is something being sold to you physically or ideologically? Are there stereotypes present? Are there conflicts of interest? How does that contribute to the overall piece? And uh, what is the thesis? Is it thought out? Is it complete? And then the, the last portion is intention. So who is served by profits from uh, or benefits from the message? Is it the public? Is it private interest, individuals or institutions? And what other economic influences uh, might make this information beneficial to a few uh, rather than you? And basically all you have to do to uh, imply, uh, apply this method is just watch a few uh, advertisements and commercials to really hone in on your ability to use this device as a method of understanding information. And then the last thing that we uh, uh, brought on as an addendum to that was understanding news media because in news media, there's two different types of information uh, in addition to just typical information that you'll encounter and that's misinformation and disinformation. Uh, the differences between them is that with misinformation is it's uh, unintentionally misleading, likely due to bias, a lack of evidence or missing sources. Uh, whereas disinformation is in uh, deliberately misleading, but it's masquerading as uh, info that's accurate or truthful, but it's usually provided by foreign actors in an attempt to uh, confuse or manipulate a population. Uh, a great example of that is, is Russia's Internet Research Agency, who usually sows seeds of, of distrust and hate in, it, in, the, um, in its adversaries' countries. And with that, that basically encapsulates the entire episode. And so I hope you've enjoyed this uh, short portion at the end, the TLDL. And be sure to come back and listen to the next episode because things are starting to get good. And with that, have a great one. Catch you on the next one.